Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 24. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920. Although sometimes we stretch into the 1930s and this episode is going to be one of those times. In this episode, I'll be talking about the professional wrestling world champion that almost no one's heard about. And that's because of his untimely death at only 33 years of age in 1936. But before I get into that, I wanted to... I don't often talk about the business side of the author business. But for um, anybody that actually owns independent bookshops or anything like that, this actually is something that might be of interest. And that is... My ebooks are all exclusive to Amazon. I've done that because it's easier to share the ebooks and that. But as a historian, most people prefer to read the books I write in paperback anyway. And I've always gone wide, well, not always. Over the last year and a half, I've gone wide with my print, but I had not gotten all of the print books up before uh, now. But over the past few weeks, I've been able to get all eight. I had four up at one time. I've been able to get all eight combat sports history books up. And then five of my old St. Louis history books uh, up as well. So now I've got 13 books that are distributed wide. They can be in bookstores. They can be in libraries. So if that's of any interest to you, um, you can find those through Lightning Source or Ingram Spark. The subject of today's podcast and why I wanted this to be the last podcast for this season is someone I've gotten interested in over the last couple of years because I just discovered him over the last couple of years. And it's a professional wrestler by the name of Jim Browning. His actual name was James Orville Browning. And he was born in Verona, Missouri, about 300-something miles from St. Louis, down in southwest Missouri on March 31st, 1903. And I had not heard of Browning uh, before, and I think it's because he died at a relatively young age in 1936, in June of 1936. He was only 33 years old. But he was a professional wrestler from the 1920s, Um, on. I think he was 19 years old when he made his professional debut. So even though he died at 36, he had a 17-year career before his untimely passing. And how I discovered Browning is I was reading about all of the double crosses in the early 1930s. And when, when Tootsmont wanted to double cross Jim Londis, there's 
two ways to do a double cross. One requires you to be able to legitimately beat or beat up or hurt the opponent you're wrestling against. So Dick Shickat uh, shooting on uh, Dano O'Mahony and beating him legitimately for the world title in the, I think it was 1936. The most famous double cross probably of all time was the double cross of the Goldust Trio when they made the mistake of putting the championship belt on Big Wayne Munn, who was a football player who didn't know anything about wrestling, and Stanislaus Zabisco shot on him in Philadelphia in April of 1925 and legitimately took the title from him. That's one way of doing a double cross. If you cannot legitimately beat up the person you're in the ring with, so let's say Henry DeGlaine versus Ed Strangler Lewis in the early 30s. And probably, this the double cross that started all of this, probably Joe Savoldi, the original Joe Savoldi, probably could not have defeated uh, Jim Londis in a straight-up contest. Because even though I've always considered Londis more of a performer, he did no hooking. And he could hook a lot of people, just not the top people like Stecker, Pesic, and Lewis. He was not in their class. But Savoldi was a performer too, Jumpin' Joe Savoldi of the 1930s. So in a, a legitimate contest, he might not have been able to beat Londis. So how Mont double-crossed Londis and put the title on Savoldi was through the referee. Same thing with the DeGlaine and uh, Lewis double-cross. And there was a double-cross in the 50s or 60s <clears throat> involving the referee where the wrestler beat the tar out of the referee after the match because he was double-crossed. But Mott, I think it was 32, double-crosses Landis and gets the title onto Savoldi but is concerned that somebody else is going to double-cross Savoldi because he's a performer. So he puts the title on Jim Browning, who was Paul Bowser's top wrestler at the time. And so I immediately suspected Browning must have had legitimate wrestling skills or they would have never put the title on him. And so I started to, to research a little bit about him. So he was born in Missouri, and he went. To, he started wrestling a few matches around his hometown, but then he goes to Kansas in 1922, and that's where it really his wrestling education begins. I have not figured out who taught him how to wrestle yet. I, I'm sure I'll be able to figure that out once I start that research project in the next year or two. But between Kansas and Kentucky, which he went to Kentucky in the Tennessee area in like 1926 and became a headliner there. So he goes to Kansas. He's a mid-card guy at first. When, and remember, this is when the cards were two to four matches. And he gets over in Kansas. He goes to Kentucky and Tennessee, and he gets over in Kentucky and Tennessee. And then in the late 20s, he goes to work for Paul Bowser in Boston, and that's pretty much where he kind of, he didn't homestead, but he was based out of Boston for most of the rest of his career. Bowser is happy to have Browning 
have the title because it's his top star. He's a big name in a big town. And apparently they are more comfortable with it on Browning because they don't figure he can be double-crossed. Not as easily as Savoldi, at least. So Browning would hold the title for a year or two. And as most of these things went, the proponers, they'd get into allegiances, they'd have a falling out, somebody double-crossed somebody else. Eventually they'd come back together and they'd start doing business again. Because all these double-crosses tended to hurt business. The matches were usually in a double cross pretty bad. There was usually some hoo-ha around them that left the fans with a bad taste in their mouth. Um, there was definitely a bad taste in the fans' mouth after Londis was double crossed by the referee in the Savoldi match. So, Browning gets the title in 32. Ed Strangler-Lewis puts him over in New York City in Madison Square Garden. And so Browning is considered the world champion in a few states. Londis is considered the champion in a few states. Londis and Mont and them make peace because they want the money. Um, whenever it hurts business, usually their greed would get them to work together again, and then their egos would cause them to have a falling out. So they start working together again, and Browning drops the title to Londis in 1934 in New York. And that would lead eventually to the big match that they had tried to put together for years. And that was Lewis versus Londis. Londis would not get anywhere near Ed Lewis if he thought it was going to be any kind of legitimate contest. So for that match to get in the ring in New York City, and it drew over 30,000 fans, I'm pretty sure that's the first crowd of 30,000 fans in the United States since the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match in Chicago. And the controversy around that match is the reason they didn't draw those kind of crowds for like the next 10 years. They started getting back into the 20,000s in certain markets in the 1920s, particularly during the heyday of the Gold Dust Trio. But they had not got to 30,000 fans since that match between Hackenschmidt and uh, Gotch until Lewis versus Londos in New York City. It wasn't in Madison Square Garden, because Madison Square Garden didn't hold that many people. It was in some kind of stadium show. And Lewis put Londos over. And Londos wouldn't get in the ring until Lewis and Mott put up $50,000 as a forfeit. If Lewis shot on Londos, Lewis would have to give the $50,000 to... Londos. So Londos got in the ring with him and Lewis did put him over. Um, but Londos was nowhere near Lewis's class and wasn't going to get into a legitimate contest with him in any way, shape, or form. When they were supposed to wrestle a legitimate contest in uh, 32 or 33, Londos sent his policeman, Ray Steele, who was a friend of Lewis's, to wrestle Lewis. He wasn't going to wrestle Lewis himself. But we're kind of getting far off of the track. Browning holds the championship for two years. Nobody double-crosses him. So he had to be good enough in the ring to handle himself. And one of the early matches that I found was actually from Tennessee. And it was a June 1924 match that he had with Terrell Miyake. Now, Terrell Miyake at this point in time is in his mid-40s. 
and he has started to uh, work matches. As he got older, in his mid-30s, he quit doing the challenge matches, and he started wrestling professional wrestling matches with other professional wrestlers where he would work the matches. And he has a match in Nashville, Tennessee, with 21-year-old Jim Browning, who's becoming a big star in the Tennessee, Kentucky area. So I was a little off of my, my timeline. He was actually in Kentucky and Tennessee. He came there in 1924 from Kansas, where he had been from 22 and 23. So Browning is in Nashville, Tennessee. He has this match with Mayaki, who has a tremendous reputation. And they wrestle about 20 minutes. It's a pretty interesting match, which makes me believe that they were working it. But something happens. And this would often happen, even when they guys started working matches in the 20s and 30s. Many of them were still legitimate wrestlers, either shooters, people who were really good amateur wrestlers, or people that were hookers that were pretty good wrestlers but had great submission skills and could hurt people. And Browning seems to be a little bit of both because he took offense at something that Mayaki did in the match, and in about the 25-minute mark, he catches Mayaki in a leg scissors, which was his pet hold, and is a legitimate shoot hold, and starts to squeeze Mayaki's head. Squeezes it so hard that blood begins to run out of one of Mayaki's ears. The professional wrestlers are masters of illusion, but I just don't see how that how that one would have been pulled off unless there was a pre-existing injury in the ear or, you know, cut the outside of the ear and try to make it bleed. Um, I don't think those were common practices this time. I think at this time, point in time, most of the blood was hard ways. And um, it's kind of hard to fake bleeding from the ear. Like I said, unless you've got a cut on the outside, but they clearly said the ear, it was, the blood was running from his inner ear, which is usually a, a significant injury. Um, the match is awarded to Browning, and Mayaki has a difficult time getting back to his feet and getting out of the ring, and forfeits the rest of the match. Were they having a legitimate contest? No. They were working the match to begin with. But matches could go from worked to shoots pretty quickly under the right circumstances in this era. So again, Mayaki may be older, but you can see that Browning had some legitimate skills and could take care of himself in the ring. I think the reason that he's not so well known today because let's face it those were some of the biggest matches of the 1930s that he was involved in anybody that they would have lewis put over was a huge star and he was the guy that they decided to have carry the world title until they could make a deal with londis to start doing business together again to make sure that londis did not double cross him and londis had double crossed some of their champions that were pure performers like Gus Sonnenberg, so they wanted to make sure that didn't happen this time. 
in the spring of 1936, Browning goes to the hospital in, I think it was Minnesota, but somewhere up in the uh, north uh, Midwest. <clears throat> so it was either Minnesota or Wisconsin or Michigan, but it was in that upper Midwest area. He goes in with a stomach ailment. Not sure if he caught it in the ring or how he got the injury, but the injury progressed very quickly, and he actually died of, I believe, a stomach rupture. But whatever had happened, whether he had injured an intestine or whatever, that's what actually took his life. And he dies at only 33 years of age. His wife takes him back to Verona, Missouri, and, and buries him, and he's buried in the town cemetery there. And he kind of fades from history. Um, I've not read many history books that included him. And he was really kind of a footnote in this particular story I read about the double crosses in the 30s and how... Because the big story was how Mont double-crossed Londis and fixed the referee in the Savoldi bout. And then the author just kind of casually mentions that, oh yeah, and they put the title on this Jim Browning kid who held it for another two years and protected against double-crosses. That is going to be one of my future research projects. Um, I actually want to go to Verona and get some pictures of his grave, see if there's any historical uh, resources in the town itself, and then just do as much research as I can with what's available about his wrestling career. So that'll be a, a future project. I'm just fascinated uh, about his particular life. So for this week's review, I've wrestled around with, I thought about going back to some classic St. Louis wrestling. <clears throat> and then I thought about, well, I could cover some of the wrestling in the 80s again. And that's kind of where I ended up at because I've gone back to starting to watch Mid-South wrestling, which I never got in uh, St. Louis until 1985 or 6. And it wasn't, it was 85. Because when I, we first got it, the Blade Runners were on there, which were Sting and Rock, who would become the Ultimate Warrior and Sting from WCW. That was 85. That's when we first got... Uh, and we got it on syndication. It wasn't on cable. It was on uh, Channel 30, KDNL, one of our independent stations here in St. Louis. Uh, the show was syndicated. And I really liked it. It was, became one of my favorite uh, shows to watch, that in World Class. But I never saw the really good stuff, which actually was the stuff from about 80, 81, all the way up to 85. So I've gone back and started watching the 81 matches. And you can watch the whole show, but the match I really wanted to talk about was on the December 10th, 1981 episode of Mid-South Wrestling. It's available on YouTube. And the match is the match that ends the show. And it's a rematch for the North American Heavyweight Championship between Ted DiBiase and Paul Orndorff. And DiBiase, I still believe to this day, was one of the greatest wrestlers of the 1980s. He should have been 
one of the guys, along with David Von Erich and Ric Flair, maybe Ricky Steamboat, who held that title off and on through the 1980s. And probably would have had he not gone to the WWE to be the million dollar man and make a lot of, I'm sure, make more money than he ever thought possible. But DiBiase in 81 is definitely in his prime, as is Paul Orndorff, who would go on to be Hulk Hogan's greatest opponent over the years and I think have the best matches with Hogan. Hogan and Andre probably drew the most money, but I think money-drawing opponent over the years, Orndorff's got to be right up there, and it's no question he had the best matches Hogan ever had as champion. And in this match, they're both kind of in their prime. Orndorff is not quite as jacked as he would get in the WWE, which I think benefits this match because I think he moves quite a bit uh, better. He moved good even when he was bigger. But I think he's really the, the perfect mix of athleticism and strength in this particular match. And DiBiase's in his prime as a baby face. And the, this whole match is built around the figure four leg lock and the fact that Orndorff thought he had the perfect counter to it taught to him by Bob Roop. So I highly recommend that match, and I hope that you will take the time to review it. So that will be it for this episode, and we'll be back in uh, July. And I hope you enjoyed this season of It Was Almost Real. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>